Okay. Another history lesson. Frederick Faber, Frederick Faber, was uh, raised in a strict Catholic tradition in the Church of England, the Anglican Church in England. He became ordained in the Anglican Church, but at the age of 31, he uh, identified with the Roman Catholic Church instead. Uh, what, the reference I read actually said he converted to the Roman Catholic Church, which in, a, in, in some sense that probably could be accurate because Roman Catholic teaching in some very significant ways is so not saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. It's really not that. So I don't know exactly where he was at on that, but he became a Roman Catholic. And in the Roman Catholic Church, he, was, he really fell under the, the mentorship of a guy who led him into Roman Catholicism. But one of the things that Frederick Faber missed about the Roman Catholic tradition was their singing. It wasn't up to par as to what he was used to in the Anglican Church. Because in the Anglican Church, he, he appreciated Isaac Watts's new music. He appreciated... Um, John Newton's Amazing Grace and his new music. He appreciated Charles Wesley. The, the Protestants had all this new music that he so enjoyed, and the Roman Catholics didn't. So he began thinking, I'm going to write music for the Roman Catholics to sing. And he wrote some 150 songs uh, for Roman Catholics. As it turns out, though, over not that long, Protestants liked his songs better than the Roman Catholics did. And so his songs really caught on among the Protestants more than the Roman Catholics. But the Protestants had to change a few things. Some of, some of the Roman Catholicism was just a little too strong. In our present hymnal, we have no songs by Frederick Faber. In our last hymnal, which we had for, well, it was before I got here, and we probably had it for 25-ish years, 20, 20 probably 25 years, we had two songs by Frederick Faber in our last hymnal. You probably recognize both titles. One was Faith of Our Fathers, and the second was There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. Now, the Protestants had to change part of Faith of Our Fathers because he had a verse, Faith of Our Fathers, Mary's Prayers, shall win our country back to thee. And through the truth that comes from God, England shall then indeed be free. Well, the Protestants couldn't obviously sing that, so they had, to, they had to put some new lyrics in there for that particular song. But the second one, there's a wideness in God's mercy, is so much exactly what we're discovering in Ephesians. That there is a wideness and a, and a greatness and a magnificence to God's mercy. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, where we're going to be in a little bit, it starts off with the word, therefore which obviously means you need to know what just came before, which is one reason why I reviewed. Therefore, because you were dead in your sins, and it's kind of like a bad infomercial, it's not just that you were dead in your sins, there's more than that. You are not only dead, but he says, remember, and he says it twice. Don't forget, not only were you dead, but remember what else was true about you, and it's not good. Now, if you thought you were beat up just because you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Paul's not done with you yet. He's like, there's more to it than just being dead, which is what we're going to discover this morning. 
So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 11 to 13, it talks about this. It reads this way. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, we're supposed to remember this. Somebody who did a really good job remembering what Paul says needs remembering is John Newton. And most of you know John Newton's story. John Newton was a slave trader. By, by the age of, I think, 22, he became master of his own slave ship. It was the next year that during a terrific storm, he had what he would describe, or he did describe, as a conversion experience. But it took him seven or eight years before he completely was convicted and got out of slavery. He come un- came under the tutelage of... Uh, who did he come under the tutelage of? George Whitfield and I think John Wesley. They were big influences in his life as he came out of, out of uh, the slave business. And he wrote what he's best known for is the song Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And a couple times over the years I've shown a video how that's written in a minor key, which I have no idea what that means other than I think it means something to do with I know there's a lot of black keys p- played on the piano. I think that's the way it was described in the video. And, and the idea is that was probably a tune he heard on the slave ships, the slaves singing, the Africans singing this tune. And he wrote Amazing Grace. He never forgot he was saved by grace. Not of his own doing, not of his own works. He was saved by the grace of God. So John Newton, on one occasion when someone was talking with Newton about despair... And the person asked Newton if he did not despair of the salvation of some other person. John Newton replied this way, I never did despair since God saved me. You should never despair of the salvation of another sinner because after all, God saved you. And that, that's the most amazing thing you know, that God saved you. So despair, not so long as you're remembering not so long as you're remembering what, what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you need to remember this. We're going to sing a song. I can't remember if it starts on the next slide or not. But it's, uh, it's the, oh, I know what it is. Okay, there's a wideness in God's mercy. We're not going to sing the original tune that Frederick Faber wrote or, or put his words to uh, because I don't know it. And it's really unfamiliar, and I listened to it a few times on YouTube, different people singing it, and I didn't find it particularly uh, inviting. Not something I I felt good about singing. Uh, But I do like the way Rich Mullins took that tune, or took those words, and put it on one of his albums. So Rich Mullins writes a song that starts off with, there's a wideness in God's mercy. And it's to the same meter as what Frederick Faber wrote, but a completely different tune and completely different lyrics, but the same concept. So I'm pretty sure it was in Rich Mullins' mind since it's the same meter. So I told you you could sit for the last one. You may not be familiar with it unless you're a Rich Mullins fan, but it's a, a beautiful song. It's entitled The Love of God. There's a wideness in God's mercy 
Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 976. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul juxtaposes two different categories of people. You've got the Gentiles and you've got the Jews. Two different categories of people that in some ways could not be more different in some other very essential ways, they're exactly alike. Our world is marred by all kinds of divisions, right? I mean, in the Civil War, there was the North and the South. Uh, many of global affairs are, are viewed in terms of West versus East. Uh, you've got Cardinal fans and Cub fans, a little bit less of a thing, especially for Cub fans these days. Uh, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. Uh, you've got people that, people that divide over all kinds of things. We have religious differences. We have social differences, socioeconomic differences, blue-collar, white-collar, uh, you know, money differences, where you live differences. I mean, we divide up people so many different ways. This, this difference between Gentiles and Jews goes back centuries in time, millennia. Millennia in time, the differences between Jews and Gentiles, the distinctions. So, so far as the Jews are concerned, they called the Gentiles the uncircumcised. That's not flattering. The uncircumcised. It's a, it's a slanderous term. It's meant to be demeaning. They referred to the Gentiles as dogs, which in our culture, dogs are 
really quite the deal. I mean, dogs are, you know, faithful companions, loyal. They're all these wonderful things. But in most of world history, dogs were considered dirty, mongrel beasts. And they weren't really good for very much. And so the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs, unclean. Well, vice versa, the Gentiles referred to the Jews as primitive, arrogant, weak, weak people always being subjected by somebody. They're arrogant because they think they're something, but they're always being subjected. And they're primitive in that their ways that they live are so not progressive, so not in keeping with the times. And so they didn't see eye to eye on hardly anything, the differences between the two groups. Paul says, Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What, what Paul's describing here is it's not accidental. He's saying, they call you the uncircumcised. It's demeaning. Paul, I think, did that before he was a believer. He would have referred to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. But now looking back, he says, you know, they're the circumcised the only circum circumcision they've experienced is one made in the flesh by hands. And that's not very impressive to God. Because if the heart isn't circumcised, it doesn't matter. If you look at Paul's own life as a Jew, before conversion, he boasted in his circumcision. You, can, you don't need to turn there, but, well, maybe you do. It's just back a page in your Bible, or a forward a page. You're in Ephesians, so the book right after Ephesians is Philippians. Why don't you... Flip over to Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at that real quick. At Paul's boast before he was a believer. In Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read this from the New International Version. Philippians chapter 3, verses, uh, the middle of verse 4 through verse 7. Paul says, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. Not just circumcised. I mean, Abraham was circumcised, but not on the eighth day. I was circumcised exactly like the law required on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legal legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. There was a time in Paul's life where he thought the fact that he'd been circumcised on the eighth day was just part of his portfolio. And he would present that as part of his resume he would present before God one day. And he would have referred to these Gentiles as the uncircumcised, the unclean. But Paul had a conversion experience. So his view of circumcision changed dramatically and he writes about it in Galatians chapter 5. So the book right before Ephesians is the book of Galatians. So go back from Ephesians 2, go back just a couple pages to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read six verses from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It reads this way. Verse 1, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note. I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. 
Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You've fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Faith in Christ. Saved by grace alone through faith. That's what matters. Whether you're circumcised or this big distinction between the two groups doesn't matter. Not, a, not when Paul's writing. So Paul renounces his, his high view of circumcision when he writes to the Galatians. If we concluded that Jews and Gentiles were both sinners in desperate need of grace, we would be correct. So the Gentiles are uncircumcised. But Paul's like, and so they're dead in their trespasses and sins, but on the same token, Paul would say, but the Jews, okay, they're circumcised, but it's only in the flesh. They're dead too. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They don't know the living God. So you've got a problem for Jews and Gentiles equally, which Paul makes very clear in Romans, especially Romans chapter 3. Whether you've got the law or whether you don't have the law, whether you're circumcised or whether you're not circumcised, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3. But right here, right now in Ephesians, Paul wants to remind the Gentiles of their prior outsider status. He's not talking about the Jews' deadness. He's talking about the Gentiles' deadness. I'm going to assume we are all Gentiles here. Nobody here is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you don't have Jewish descent. You're a Gentile. So he's not arguing that Jews don't have a sin problem. He just wants to talk about our sin problem. So he wants to remind us of our prior outsider status when it came to what God was doing. Paul says, remember that you were at that time. At what time? You were at that time something. At what time was I that thing? Well, when I was dead in the trespasses and sins in which I once walked, according to the course of the world, I lived like the world. I was under the influence of the evil one, uh, the prince of the power of the air. I was living out according to the lusts of my heart and my flesh. That's what I was ruled by. At that time, here's some things that were true. I was separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. These are Gentile disadvantages. Very distinct disadvantages. To understand these disadvantages, because I've read uh, as much as I could in one week, as much, what I read was some diversity of opinion as to what these disadvantages exactly are or what they look like. I think if we're going to understand these disadvantages, and I couldn't be more convinced, to understand the disadvantages that we had, they're best understood in light of the advantages that Israel had. So if I want to understand our disadvantage, I need to juxtapose it against Israel's advantage. Because the two go together. And it couldn't be more clear. So let's look. And this time you don't have to turn in your Bible. It's not right next to Ephesians. So I put it on the screen. In Ephesians chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, it reads like this. 
Paul says of the Israelites, they're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. To them belong the glory. To them belong the covenants. To them belong the giving of the law. To them belong the worship. To them belong the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Those are all Jewish advantages. And those are clear advantages. The Gentiles didn't have any of those advantages. So if I want to understand what Paul says about our disadvantages, I need to do that in light of all of Israel's advantages. So let's go back. First of all, Paul says we were separated from Christ. Now, in Ephesians, one of the things we've discovered multiple times is how every, every blessing that we have is because we're in Christ. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of Him, uh, forgiveness of sins. Over and over and over, it's in Christ, it's in Him. If, if our identification isn't with Christ, we don't have virtually anything for Paul to tell us about. Because all those advantages are because we're in Christ. That's not what he's talking about here. Because if he's saying there was a time you weren't in Christ, well, the Jews aren't in Christ either. So there would be no difference between Jew and Gentile. So he's not saying there was a time you were not in Christ. He's saying there was a time you were separated from Christ. And what he means by that, you had no exposure to him. You didn't know that the prophets were foretelling a day when the Lord would send a Redeemer, a Savior, to take away sin. You didn't know John the Baptist was declaring, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You didn't know uh, what, how Jesus taught in the temple and how he traveled Palestine, the, the land of Canaan, with his disciples working miracles. You didn't hear him teach. You had none of those advantages. You were separate from Christ. All those stories are new to you because you lacked exposure. So that's the first disadvantage. You knew nothing about God promising to send a Messiah, a Savior. You have no uh, context for understanding that he came and that he died on a cross. And the third day he rose again. And then 40 days later he ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. That's all a, a disadvantage to you. You didn't know any of that, not the Gentiles. Compare that to the advantage and the exposure to Jesus that the Jews had. Because they knew all of that stuff. And probably a really great reference for that is, in, is uh, Hebrews chapter 6. So let me show you what Hebrews 6 looks like. These are the advantages of Israel in relation to Messiah. It looks like this. Therefore, let us... Hebrews is written to Hebrews, by the way. That's not hard to figure out. It's written to Jews... So it's not, uh, the author of Hebrews didn't write it thinking Gentiles. He wrote it, it's a letter or a message delivered to Jews. And the author says, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Messiah or Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal punishment. And this we will do if God permits. What he's talking, you know, when he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, he's not talking to Gentiles, because Gentiles didn't know nothing about Christ. 
If he were writing a letter to the Gentiles, he would say, all right, let me start with the elemental doctrines about Christ. Let me take you back to the whole story that we read about, the story of redemption that's unfolding in the, old, the First Testament scriptures. But for Jews, they didn't need that. That was to their advantage. They already knew all of that. He goes on to say, verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, he's talking to Jews, have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Now, to really understand that would probably take about three weeks. We spent a good number of years ago timing Hebrews. It's a fascinating passage, but the gist of it is this. He's writing to Hebrews, and he's saying, you had exposure to Jesus and his teaching. You had exposure to his miracles. You had exposure to what he was able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. You knew all of this stuff. And if you don't confess Christ as, as the promised Messiah, the one who did take away sins, the one who was foretold, if you reject that, there's no hope for the Jews. Because God's not going to send a prophet to follow up his only begotten son. But that's Jewish gospel. That's not, what, that's not what Gentiles need to hear. So going back to the Gentiles, we're told we were separated from Christ. Furthermore, we're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, it's talking about our outsider status. We were excluded. To be, some of your Bibles may have the word citizenship. We weren't part of the citizenship of Israel, the, the commonwealth of Israel. Virginia is a commonwealth. Uh, commonwealth means you have the rights and benefits and privileges of being associated with that group, with that organization, with that organism. Uh, and, and Israel had many advantages, some of which we've already looked at on the screen. I mean, they had a, a system of justice that if they'd followed it, would have been excelled by no other nation on earth that was so just because it looked out for the poor and it looked out for the needy and it looked out for the widows. Israel had all these advantages, but, but Paul says to the Gentiles, you were alienated from that. I mean, you couldn't just become, uh, go into Israel and have all those advantages like you belonged. I mean, that's one of the fights in our country right now, right? I mean, if you're an American citizen, it's supposed to come with certain rights and privileges. You know, you're able to vote, you're able to participate in things, you're able to receive certain benefits because you belong to America, you're a U.S. citizen. It would be the same way for Israel, but Paul says that didn't include you. If you just happen to go on a, on a tourism trip into Israel, into Jerusalem, and think that you're going to have all the advantages as if you actually belong, you're wrong. It doesn't work like that. And Paul says it didn't work like that for the Gentiles. He also says you were strangers to the covenants of promise. That is, you were an outsider of the covenants. Uh, you were excluded from those covenants of promise. Now, there's two very interesting words. Covenants is plural and promise is singular. So these covenants are covenants having to do with a promise. And you had no part. You were excluded. You were an outsider. There's a lot written on what Paul is talking about. In my 
understanding, what I'm persuaded by, is again, he's juxtaposing Gentile disadvantages with Hebrew or Israel's advantages. He's not talking about Noah's covenant, where God said, the rainbow is a sign of my covenant, I will never flood and destroy all the people on the earth again. That, that includes Gentiles. That's a promise that includes Gentiles. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about covenants that were repeated, and they were promised to Israel, not to Gentiles. And I think the most obvious conclusion at least includes this. This is the heart of it. That is a covenant he made with Abraham. And that covenant was passed on and repeated to Isaac. And that covenant was passed on and repeated to Jacob. A person who is a Jew today is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ethnically. Physically. You have to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were given these, this covenant, these covenants, because they were, it was repeated three times, and it's always God's promising what he's going to do for Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's Gentiles. But the Gentiles didn't know that that was promised to Abraham. It's true. But God didn't give that promise to Gentiles. He gave it to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob. Paul says... You were excluded from that. God didn't reveal himself to pick your Gentile king and make these wonderful promises that he made to those three individuals. That was an entirely Jewish thing. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Fourthly, having no hope. And here I thought this is the best picture I could do with dust in the wind. Gentiles are people with no hope apart from God intervening. We're dust in the wind. We live lives uh, that are meaningless, that are vain. There was uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a really famous preacher, um, medical doctor who turned preacher who died, I think, in roughly 1968 or so. He wrote, the deeper a man thinks, the more pessimistic he becomes. Outside of Christ. The more seriously you consider what is the meaning of life apart from Christ the more pessimistic and, and vain it really all is. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about the men's article that I'm going to have uh, the guys discuss about, where it says, uh, everything happens for no reason. So what's the point? Everything happens for no reason? There's no coherence to any of this? There's no significance to any of this? That's people without any hope. That's people that don't know where they came from, they don't know why they're here, and they don't know what happens next. And Paul says, that was Gentiles. And then lastly, he says, we were without God in the world. It doesn't mean we weren't religious. Gentile cultures all over the world are largely, overwhelmingly religious. They have idols and gods. I mean, usually multiple, multiple gods and powers that they worship. Now, in Western culture, we've become so advanced, our biggest God is ourselves. We don't view these higher deities out there that somehow affect us. In America, you are your own God. You get to choose your own destiny. You get to choose your own significance in America. But it's not the God of Scripture. So we're without God because it really doesn't matter. It's not true. We can believe it as much as we want, but it's not true. So we're without hope. And we're without God. And then verse 13 crashes on the scene. 
now, which is so interesting because that's exactly what we found in verse 5, right? Or was it verse 4? You know, we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God made us alive. Now we have all of this, all of what we looked like in our Gentile world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What were we brought near to by the blood of Christ? That's what we're actually going to discover in weeks moving forward. We're not really going to discover it in any detail now. But what you're going to find, what we were brought near to, it's both horizontal and it's vertical. In the most immediate context, when Paul says, but now you've been brought near, he's saying you've been brought near to where the Jews are. Now the gap has been bridged, Jew and Gentile together, creating in himself a new man. So there's a horizontal reconciliation. All that enmity and hostility that had kept the two groups separate for centuries of time, but now the gap has been bridged in Christ. And that gap has been bridged in Christ to create a new man so that Christ can bring us to God. We've been brought near to God. Under the old system, it was the Jewish high priest that got near to God once a year by going into the most holy place to sprinkle a little bit of blood. But now, in Christ Jesus, by the blood of Christ, Jews and Gentiles both not only are brought near to one another, but they're brought near to God. What an amazing thing. So the news in one sense keeps getting worse, but it only gets worse so that it can demonstrate how much has been accomplished by God in Christ. What an amazing thing. This is a great time for your comments and questions. And I'm like, wow, am I early. You've been so cheated. Does uh, anybody have any comments or questions? I'll give you one other little hint if nobody does. Yes, Hannah and then Alex. The deeper, the deeper a man thinks, the more pessimistic he becomes. Yeah, just living in the moment, living by your passions, your desires, whatever's, if it feels good, do it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, that's, that's one reason why I so love teaching Ecclesiastes, which I say is the only book I've ever repeated, and I've repeated it twice here, and then I taught it in Teen Club as well some years ago. So in some sense, I've taught it three times at our church. I've never taught any other book twice, but Ecclesiastes is so fascinating because it's all about the meaning of life. So fascinating. And John, my son in Louisville at Southern Seminary, is, uh, he's taking a class right now on Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And, you know, we're trading a few notes, and he's got to write a really big paper. And I'm like, well, I think you should write on this. And I think I've sold him on the idea, which is like a, just a pivotal point at the end of Chapter 2. Uh, and I can't wait to read it. I just hope he gets the answer right. <laughs> Somebody, uh, Alex? The animosity between the two groups was, was strong. So, yeah, 
and uh, the Jews, well, I mean, I, the Gentiles on one hand, I think for the most part, they didn't care about the Jews. They viewed them as backward, as repressive, as all these things, but they're weak, so who really cares about the Jews? Like, they're not a threat to Gentile empires. Alexander the Great didn't really care what the Jews thought or did. He's, con- he's too busy conquering the world. Though he's been laid in a grave. Uh, it didn't end well for him. The Jews would have considered the Gentiles the uncircumcised. That's more like the infidels. They're God. They worship all these things that aren't God. We worship the living God. And on one level, they had the... I mean, the living God was part of their heritage. But they weren't in a right relationship as a whole. There were always individuals that were. There were always different Jews, Israelites, that did have a right relationship with the living God. But as a whole, they were estranged from that God. But they had the advantage. At least they had the right one, right? That is an advantage versus the Gentiles. Good point. Anybody else? Uh, Jeff. Yes and no. Not to the same extent, though. The law, the Romans makes it very clear the law was given to Jews that trespass might increase. The law was given to Jews so that sin would be magnified. In other words, if uh, let's, let's keep it simple. Let's say if all God gave Israel was ten laws, you had ten ways to get it wrong. And you probably broke all ten, you know, certainly in your lifetime. Uh, but you broke all ten. But in fact... The law given to Israel through Moses included 613 laws. So now you've got 613 ways to get it wrong. That magnifies sin. What the Jews did was, I don't care how many laws God gives us, we're up for the task. We're going to do it. I'll roll up my sleeves. I'll work hard. I will demonstrate whatever God throws at me, I can keep. And so what it was intended to accomplish was the exact opposite of what Israel as a whole took away from it. They thought they kept the law. Paul wrote, I mean, we saw in Philippians, Paul said, as to keeping the law, I was blameless. But then he got struck later on in Romans, he talks about, but then I realized how much coveting was in my heart, and it slew me. I recognized. In fact, I don't keep the law like I think. So the Gentiles have, on one sense, what what are the early Christians before called it more the natural law. Natural law written on the tablets of your heart. You don't have to teach a a child when he lies he's done something wrong. That's why it's so easy to, I mean, as a parent, when you're a child, you think, my parents are so crazy smart. I lied and, and it didn't fool them at all. It's because their consciences are so tender. They tell a lie, it's written all over their face, and it's like, or, or I know you're stealing something, you know, I'm, I can remember different times I catch kids in the church building doing something. They'll have something behind their back, and they're walking like this. And they think they're being sneaky, and I'm like, all right, what's behind your back? Like, you know, it's not that I'm that smart. It's just you've got a tender conscience. It's written all over your face you've done something wrong. So Gentiles have that. But the Jews, if there's any people group on earth that should have said, we are in desperate need of a Savior, it should have been Israel. And that's not what they came away with. They came away with thinking, we don't need a Savior. Let's put him on a cross. I think we're just fine the way we are. And they were wrong. So that's a fascinating point. Joe? I find it interesting here. I, yeah. Reasons, yep. It really doesn't elaborate. He mentions it. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly not to this point, and I can't think where he does, which is interesting. I mean, I, I do know I read one commentary that, uh, and we didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time on that, at, at least at this point, I probably won't, but how, how out of step that is with our culture. In fact, it's out of step with a lot of Christian culture. Like, the church needs to, like, stop talking about the blood so much. You know, a lot of churches... Uh, or, or groups that identify with Christianity is like, all right, we got to, like, the blood is a turnoff for a lot of people. Like, let's just kind of leave that to the aside. Like, we want to move on from that. You know what? None of this is true apart from the blood of Christ. So, if, I, so I wonder, would Gen, what would Gentiles at that time have thought? Have thought yeah. about that church? And I, I don't know the answer. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see as we work through Ephesians, if it emerges, we come a little closer to what they would have understood. Uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, I could go on a tangent, but I won't. Anybody else? Uh... So what we're going to see moving forward, building on this, the, here's what we were, but now what God has done, and then we're going to talk about this great reconciliation that takes place horizontally and vertically, and it's all because of Christ. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.